0: The reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is God's very word. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just; the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayers. As we ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the word. O Lord, we gather around Your word and I confess with our mouths that. Uh, It is sweeter than honey, more precious than silver and gold, uh, that uh, by it we live. Indeed, more important is your word than bread and water. And so we ask, Lord, that as we have uh, confessed and acknowledged these things, so you would make us to know them, Lord you would make us to eat your word and to devour it that we might have life grow up within us as you nurture and feed what you have begun to posture us aright Lord to receive speak to hearts Lord guard words and do what only you can do in bringing about faith and hope and love and conviction and assurance and encouragement. Building up your church unto salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Continuing our time in the sixth commandment, you can turn in the hymnal to page 973, or I believe the questions are once more on the Bulletin insert for your convenience. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Sixth Commandment. I'll read the brief commandment in verse 13, and then we'll turn to the questions. So, first, this is God's Word. Uh, You shall not murder. Thus ends God's Word. And then, once more, the catechism questions starting in question 67. We'll start in question 68. What is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. In question 69, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of Tendeth thereunto. Even just a, a brief reflection on the, the verb to kill um, brings to mind that not all killing is the same. Well, we alluded to this last week. Uh, That while all taking of life is dreadful, uh, not all taking of life is unjust or unlawful. And that's where I'd like to start our considerations this evening, by explaining further uh, that point. All taking of human life is dreadful. But not all taking of human life is unjust or sinful, as strange as that may seem. In fact, it's quite possible that the call to preserve life, the life of ourselves and the life of others, in certain certain circumstances could result in the necessary taking of life of another. Or to state it another way, which is how Westminster Larger Catechism 136 states it, it is forbidden to take away the life of ourselves or of others except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Now, I remarked last week that we can be rather cavalier about this. And I've noticed a certain cavalier tendency in some of our own literature, particularly about the goodness of God's provision of defense. Nevertheless, that temptation acknowledged Scripture is plain, that in this fallen world, where sin is rampant and widespread and often leads to violence, God has put certain legitimate mechanisms in place to keep that sin in check, and thus to keep life in this fallen world as a possibility. Whereas sin, unchecked, would snuff out life altogether. It is a veritable chaos, if you will, making life as such impossible. An early reformer, Heinrich Bollinger, explains it this way. The Sixth Commandment flatly forbids killing any man upon private authority. But the magistrate kills at God's command when he puts to death those who are by law condemned for their offenses or when in defense of his people he justly and necessarily arms himself to the battle. I think this is difficult for us in a number of different ways but it's worth wrestling with in the light of this commandment and it is exactly what Paul undertakes to grapple with in Romans 12 and Romans 13. If you'd like, you can turn to the end of Romans chapter 12. We see Paul make this distinction that Christians as private citizens are called to lives characterized by mercy. Mercy. That what Christ expects us to discharge is nothing less than what we have received. But he differentiates this unique charge to individual Christians and another figure, the magistrate. So we can look at several of these verses at the end of chapter 12. Look what he says in verse 17, speaking to Christians, "'Repay no one evil for evil.'" But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, you can hear the Christian ethic there. Paul sums it up even in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a uniquely Christian ethic. It's nothing short of what God has done unto us in Christ, is it not? He did not arm himself in vengeance against us, properly speaking. If you can believe it, and allow me to state it this way, the Father was pleased to go to war not with us, but with the Son, whom he was pleased to crush in our stead as what our sin deserves, as what our evil deserves, so that good could come unto us. And in so doing that good unto us, he overcame our evil with that good. As our hearts were dissolved unto tears, when the Spirit opened our eyes to see the horror of what our sin deserves there on Calvary. And the love that would place the beloved Son as the one who bore it, so that we could go free. That's the basic of the basis of the Christian ethic there. We've not received due payment for our evil. We've received good beyond degree and thus our personal actions are built upon a foundation in Christ. Extending mercy, earnestly longing for good to come, even when we receive evil, just as our portion was in Christ. But this is very different to what Paul envisions the public magistrate doing. If you turn the pages, or the next chapter, whatever the case may be, we see similar words attending Paul's sketching out of God's purpose for the Christian magistrate. You can look at verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. We are to respond to bad conduct with good. Civil magistrates are to respond to bad conduct with terror. (laughs) They are to be a terror to those who do evil in a way that we're not called to be, in a way that's different from the individual Christian's call. They bear a sword, a weapon which inflicts death, judicial death either to individual criminals or invading nations, either case, and both of these are similar principles, Where violence is inflicted as a means of protection, whether public good in the punishment of a criminal or public good in the defense of an invading nation. But either way, it's a legitimate sword that Christ has given to the civil magistrate. Notice in verse 4, Paul says, he is God's servant for your good. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath on the wrongdoer. Instruct individual Christians. Do not avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. What does he instruct magistrates? Avenge! You are my instrument of wrath. There is a role there that they legitimately play in the economy of God in using pure strength to keep evil at bay. And this is God's good and wise design. Now we can take the principle as well established. It's throughout our reformed understanding of the law is given to the magistrate and the difference between a private individual and a public official. We can even recognize that there's a goodness to it, can we not? The idea that King Arthur and his knights would be a force to establish the rule of law from both internal and external threats, we can see a blatant goodness to that. We can also go further and say that Paul was able to see this in a time when the emperor was not the best of men. (laughs) If we grant any legitimacy to the dating of Romans, we find that Paul is writing under the reign of Nero, who's about to put Paul to death. If Christian tradition is any sure testimony, and yet he still sees some semblance of this working itself out, even though there is, for all intents and purposes, a monstrous regime that is the current power at B. All of which is to say we can see the principle as established, we can see the goodness of it, and we can also acknowledge the historical messiness of it in its working itself out. Can we not? We also glimpse something of the goodness of God in this. Beloved, make no mistake, the justice of God is excellent as well, for it is who God is, and we glimpse something of that on display here in Paul's thinking. We also see the excellence of a God, infinite in power, who employs that power to protect the helpless, do we not? To draw near to the oppressed, do we not? And so even in this, we see something lovely about our God. And that particular goodness, the employment of strength on behalf of the weak, well, this also shows up in the circumstances of necessary defense. Albeit there, it's with more restraint. Now, on the one hand, the legitimacy of self-defense works itself out as the principle of the positive working out of the command to preserve life. We heard the story a few weeks back, maybe it was a month back or so now, of the young boy who saw from a window someone trying to drag off his sister. They lived in a rural area, and a man emerged from the wood, and the boy watched as the man tried to drag his sister away, and what did he do? He went for his slingshot, and he took aim. And he landed two or three good shots and the man ran off. We see this a certain loveliness, do we not? Because it wasn't a reckless hate. It wasn't an insatiable cruelty moving the boy's hand. It was a love for his sister. It was a protecting of the helpless, which is the beautiful heart which beats at the legitimacy of self-defense. This passage that... The larger catechism and other reformed thinking adduces for this is found in Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. This is admittedly a tricky little passage, and it's a tricky little law here considering what happens in the case of a thief. But the conventional interpretation of this seems sound. If a thief breaks in and the owner kills the thief in the dead of night, the darkness veiling the level of threat, man not being able to know whether he poses a threat to his family's life and his own life and he takes that life, then the owner is innocent. If, however, it's taking place in broad daylight and the owner kills a man who's just trying to take his stuff, he's actually guilty for responding disproportionately, a life for stuff. So it's evidence here, biblical proof of what the larger is trying to encapsulate in necessary defense, not disproportionate cruelty, not a slaking of the bloodlust which is ever near at hand. We can draw this first point to a close, and I'm sorry it came off a bit more like a lecture. We can draw this point to a close by highlighting some applications. As we've already mentioned, the justice on display imperfectly in the realm of human affairs. When it is done, truly does reveal something of God's glorious nature. When Christ returns, both justice and mercy will abound to his praise. Both together will make known the infinite nature of his excellencies. Now as private citizens, as Christians, as followers of Christ, our character and our conduct is to be overwhelmingly colored by mercy. Paul says you are constituted by mercy. You are vessels of mercy. Because of his mercy, you're alive. Thus, it is everywhere evident when our character and conduct begins to tip towards wrath, begins to tip towards anger, and our misguided sense of justice, something is off. For those who have received mercy... Our hearts long for others to receive mercy. May God keep us consistent in this regard. But I will say that doesn't prevent us from solemnly acknowledging the excellency of justice when it appears lawfully administered. We can run into the temptation of this hyper sentimentalization of of God, can't we? Such that people won't even speak about wrath. People won't even speak about justice when it comes to God. Beloved, the cross reveals God's justice. The horror of cavalry says this is what sin deserves. If we have no sense of justice, beloved, I assure you, we have no sense of mercy. For mercy is receiving in Christ. What our sins should have received, which we assess by virtue of an appreciation of God's justice. Second, we can give thanks for the wisdom and the goodness of God in providing this fallen world with multiple mechanisms used to restrain sin. Our earnest desire is that Christ's blood will cleanse and convert the sinful hearts. But we can also give thanks that where he doesn't convert, he also often keeps in check. Beloved, I trust that the day of revelation is going to be no mild revelation of the degree to which God kept sin in check. From keeping that dragon, from loosing that bond. There is a fear of the sword which operates to keep sin at bay. And while this doesn't overcome evil with good, it certainly keeps evil to the periphery to a degree where life can still take place in the center. One need only to compare our time and place with almost any other time and place, really, the more you read history, the more you get a sense for the degree to which lawlessness was much closer to the call of the land. I'm reading this book by John Williams right now called uh, The Redeemed Captive Returns to Zion. Anybody read this book? It's the story of a minister of the gospel in Massachusetts in the early 1700s who was attacked in the French-Indian War and he had to watch as people he loved were killed and he was taken away. And it was like, it was the Wild West there was no justice to be for. There was no law to be put in place. There was no recourse to be had. They were just utterly at the behest of power and the sovereignty of God. When you consider the safety that all of our days have known, it's remarkable that we reflect upon God's goodness in this capacity. Is it not? That lawlessness is kept at bay. That the chaos that sin would revel in has not reached a pitch of intensity such that life becomes an impossibility. Let us not be guilty of thankless hearts in this regard. And then third, the relative utility of the sword makes room for us to recognize and honor courage and valor before men. Even if such courage and valor does not amount to true righteousness before the Lord... There is something still recognizably good in the fireman who risks his life to save someone else. We don't have to downplay that. The soldier who fights for those who cannot fight for themselves is manifestly lovely in one manner of speaking. A society in a church that cannot see the relative goodness in Arthur and his knights, that boy and his wonderful slingshot, has no true eyes to see the good, the true, and the beautiful in its messy iterations in this world of sin and misery. Does that make sense? So much for the just taking of life in this fallen world. But what of our individual responsibilities in the light of the sixth commandment? First, we are called to avoid all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to unjust destruction of life. So the commandment is thou shalt not kill. The principle is that life is a gift from God and that he gives life for a reason, namely to glorify himself. That's what our catechism says, right? What is the chief end of man? That's right, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. One theologian observes the fact that life is a gift given to us for a specific purpose implies a limitation. The fact that life is given to us for a specific purpose implies a limitation, meaning this life is neither a good to be valued absolutely above all things, nor is it a trivial thing to be squandered or hazarded recklessly. Do I need to repeat that? I fear I've fallen back into lecture mode. (laughs) (laughs) This life is neither a good to be valued above all things absolutely, Nor is it a trivial thing to be squandered or hazarded recklessly or thoughtlessly. You see limitations there? Okay. Life is subordinated to God's glory. The Lord may call us to lay down our lives for something greater. He never calls us to throw away our lives, as the saying goes. So we are called to value life properly, and a proper study of the value of life will lead to avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust destruction of the life of any. That's what Westminster Larger Catechism 136 states. Everybody's with me. (laughs) We're doing this. So for instance, concerning occasions which tend to the unjust taking of life, Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall. Now, the roof of an Israelite home was essentially another room. It was a room with a potential breeze. So it was a common room. And so God here instructs his people to take due precaution by building a little wall or a fence around the edge of the roof to minimize the risk of someone falling off. Make a couple of observations here. We can note first that God's providential care for life extends throughout his kingdom. Now it's striking that in Deuteronomy 22 there are a number of laws all of which specify care for life you'll find the life of straying animals comes under God's care you'll find the life of overburdened animals coming under God's care you'll even find the life of birds and eggs coming under God's regulatory care all along he's concerned with the life and the well-being of our neighbor's Here, God extends particular care to the life of our neighbor when he enters our home. The Lord says, in essence, your home is to reflect my home. The way you govern your home is to reflect the way I govern my home. I make provision for and extend care to the lives in my home. So you are to do in your station with those who come into your home. Notice also that God is pleased to use his children in the extension of his care. God uses instruments. He is free not to use instruments, but very often he uses instruments. Here the protection of life which God extends is extended through his children. God retrieves the straying animal. He relieves the exhausted beast of burden. He protects the visiting neighbor through the obedience of his people. And there is a manifest loveliness in being made instrument of life. Or to say it another way, there is a certain loveliness to resembling our God who cares for and preserves the lives of others. But above all, we can see that very thing on display in the sun, can't we? The obedient servant, the one who retrieves the wandering, the one who bears our burden of sin, the one who stands, as it were, as a wall around us, protecting and defending us from all our enemies and his. Last, we can note from Deuteronomy 22, 8, the reasonableness of the measure taken he doesn't call us to remove every single conceivable possibility of harm nor is this wall a guarantee that harm will not come he does not call us to become god in our endeavoring to preserve life for ultimately even in the safest environment the lord is the giver and taker of life Rather, he does call us to simple, modest, and reasonable measures to guard against needless injury or loss of life. So we reasonably ask, what are simple and reasonable measures that we can take to make sure our homes, to make sure our churches are a place where unnecessary harm and injury does not occur? For ultimately, are not our homes under the command of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are not our churches under the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life? We can also consider this phrase temptations, which tend to the unjust destruction of life. And here we turn to Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. It's a well-known portion, as we consider not even that long ago as the Lord is being tempted by the devil. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here the specific temptation was to put God's care... And provision for life to the immediate test. God had protected his servants through many remarkable dangers in the past. You can think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the widow of Zarephath. But in each of these situations, God was the one pleased to make a trial of his servants' faith and obedience. By his providence, he had placed his servants in the midst of harm, and by his providence, miraculously, he was pleased to see them through. That is God's right to do. Our response is more akin to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God can save, but even if he doesn't, we're not worshiping your God. (laughs) That's a lovely response. Hmm. It is God's right to put his servants to the test. As God's servants, we have no right to put him to the test. And that's how Jesus responds. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There is a vast difference between God calling us into a dangerous situation and us needlessly plunging into a dangerous situation because of some external or misguided temptation. It was not danger from which our Lord shrunk back. Make no mistake of that. It was needless danger prompted by a temptation unto sin, from which he withdrew in godly wisdom and courage. In a, wi- in a river runs through it. Oh, either read the book or watch the movie. I hope uh, the McLean boys steal a boat in order to ride them through some very rough rapids and over a waterfall. Why? Because they were bored and no one had ever done it before. (laughs) Their father, a Presbyterian minister, is justly upset. Now, he doesn't cite Westminster Larger 136, either in the book or the movie. They do quote the Westminster Shorter in the book But not the larger. I mean, you can't be perfect. (laughs) But he certainly could have cited the larger 136, because this is the very thing it has in mind. His boys risked their lives and stole and wrecked a neighbor's boat for what? Temptation unto glory. Ennui, you might say. (laughs) I think there's a good word for children in this. Children. If your friends are doing something dangerous and they invite you to join them, should you do it? Of course not. Why? Because your life is precious to God and you belong to the king who died to make you his own, who placed his name on you in your baptism. Your friends might laugh at you. They might make fun of you for being cared. But rest assured, the true king who alone knows true courage will see and smile at your true courage as you walk away from such a silly situation. To conclude, we can marvel. I hope you can marvel. I can marvel at how God has protected us up until this point in our lives. For many of us, we can likely think back to specific situations which should have resulted in our very great harm, if not our death. And for some of us, we were there for needless and foolish reasons. But God, in his very great kindness, preserved you, as is evidenced by your presence here tonight. (laughs) Many of the times God's providence keeps us from the vicinity of danger and for this we can be thankful as well. But perhaps you've had the experience where he's actually brought you through a very real danger. Maybe you were there for a good reason, maybe you were there for a foolish reason, but you are through it for only one reason, the Lord in his kindness preserved you. Give him thanks, beloved. And now serve him with fear for as many days as he grants you in this world. We can also point out how there's no list of activities or requirements for our homes to fulfill this call of a careful study of and avoidance of what tends unto unjust destruction. We love lists. We love our lists. There's no list. It's a principle that we need to grapple with in earnestness. And it's accompanied with new eyes to understand the excellencies of life as a gift to be used for the glorifying of God in the service of his people to be guarded and kept insofar as it depends upon us. I knew a man when we were younger whom you would describe as either fearless or reckless depending on how charitable you were trying to be. I had watched him jump from cliffs 50 to 75 feet above waters below without even a flicker of hesitation. And then I watched him get married and have children, only to find himself pausing before proverbial cliffs, unwilling to do what he had formerly done without a blink. It seems to me that something similar happens to the child of God who comes to realize the double preciousness of their life given by the Creator and redeemed by the Savior and thus only fittingly employed in the service of His glory however He sees fit, not to be squandered on trifles. And last, we can marvel at the Son who loved not His own life above the glory of the Father. Our king was called to lay down his life. It was not a needless sacrifice, nor was it a vain act. Rather, it was the ultimate act of love and life, bringing glory to God and giving life to the elect. We see in this our salvation, and we see in this our call. For as Christ tells us, those who lose their lives for the sake of the Son will gain them in everlasting splendor for eternity. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. Sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. Give us the eyes to see the preciousness of the gifts that you've given us. Above all, the sun and even the breath which fills us day by day for all our days that you've given us, Lord. May we use them in the service of your glory, for we ask in Christ's name, amen.